welcome to the second episode of Agnes by Alma, um, a podcasted deep dive into the films of Agnes Varda. Um, yeah, today I have the great pleasure of talking about Cleo de Saint-Gasset, Cleo from 5 to 7, with my dear friend Yen Pham. Thanks for coming, Yen. You're very welcome. Um, yeah, so... I'm so excited to talk about this movie. I had not seen it um, since I was first discovering Ani Svarda, and I feel like I've appreciated it much more on this watch. Um, but before we get into it, Yen, I don't know if you want to introduce yourself or, you know, if you've seen Ani Svarda's films before, how you came to her, and just sort of whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess to give some interest for myself, so I'm a writer... I am currently in Australia, which is where I'm from, but we know each other from college. And in terms of my background with Agnes Varda, I probably watched this film for the first time a few years ago. Uh, I think just coming across it in the sense that it's obviously like in the film canon. And mm-hmm. I think I'd actually seen Faces Places before. And I'm trying to think about whether I've seen any other Vada films? And I think the answer is actually no. So um, would be interested to get your completest perspective on her filmography. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know why I haven't seen more because obviously this movie is amazing. So um, looking forward to yeah seeing others over time. Yeah, totally. That's part of why I'm doing this podcast is there are still plenty I have not seen. Um, so yeah, completest vision of it can't happen until the end of all of this. Um, but yeah, cool. So we're both second time watches on this. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Cool. Um, yeah. How did it compare a second time to your first time? I mean, it was still, I remember loving it the first time and I loved it this time as well. Mm. And I guess probably the first time I wasn't watching it with a view to talking about it on anyone's podcast. (laughs) So I think the second time, yeah, it it just, it felt like there was so much in it that I didn't remember from the first time or like just there was so much to think about and it felt so rich. Uh, So that, that was my feeling. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I completely agree. Um, Last episode of the podcast shared that I think La Pointe Courte was the first Anisbara movie I ever saw. And I Mm -hmm. guess I was just like, yeah, just decided to go chronologically at least for the first couple, so I think Cleo mm-hmm. was the next one, and so I was, yeah, really into the film, really into the music, and I had remembered, mm. honestly, mostly Karina or Karine Marchand's face and like the costumes yes. and just the beauty, um, an astonishing face, yes, and astonishing costume, <laughs> yes, incredible. The wig, the wig, uh, amazing. The shot of the wig on the chair is like maybe my favorite. Yes, I was just going to, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah, incredible. So good. Um, yeah, and I also, uh, this is jumping ahead to the documentary mm. that w- we watched as well for this week, but uh, the fact that Ani sort of designed that polka dot dress. Yeah, I guess this is like a, as in she, I guess she must have actually gotten it made or something like that. I guess so. Yeah. Um, and that was back when they knew how to do some tailoring. It looked they did. so good. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess we can just start with the beginning. So, I mean, um, both, obviously, the movie starts with that tarot sequence, and then there's, in the documentary, she also starts. So, this is remembrances, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the documentary, she also starts by talking about the tarot sequence, because I guess she gets a lot of questions about why it starts in colour. Did you have any thoughts um, about that sequence? I, well, first of all, I hadn't remembered that there was a sequence of color. So I was like... Yeah, I, okay, I was a little ashamed to admit it, but yes. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, I totally didn't, and then felt, like, astonished anew. Yeah. Like, what? This movie's in black and white, what's happening? Um, And, yeah, I felt like it flowed so well for, like, such a, I don't know, potentially tricky thing Mm. to pull off. Um, or like could even feel kind of gimmicky. Right. I think the, the images of tarot cards generally, like I'm not a big like tarot person, but I've always Mm -hmm. loved the imagery of it and the look of tarot cards. And I feel like 
there were so vivid of like the hanged man and death and the various um, figures that she sees on the cars that like color kind of made sense. And then I think the first time we see the black and white and the sort of cut to reality um, is when it's like a close up of the card reader and she says, Oh, are you sick? Vous êtes malade? Oui. Ah, oui, vous voilà, la femme, Venus Astarte. C'est sur vous la maladie. Boom, like there's, that's what the film is going to be about. Um, and that's sort of like the black and white stark reality kind of intruding in this, I think as Anya Sparta describes it in the documentary as this like fiction that they're both believing in and engaging in. And she, the medium, doesn't want to read her poem. That's also mm-hmm. very ominous. Like looks at it as if she knows exactly what's going on, and then is just like, yeah. "I don't read palms. <laughs> it's not my thing." So disturbing. <laughs> and who is that man in the back room? I don't. Yeah, it's all. It's all very. It's all very. You know, mysterious. Yeah. So completely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't really get around to having more developed thoughts uh, about what it was that it was doing when she, I watched the doc before watching the documentary in which she explains what she meant to do. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, no, it, it made sense to me. I, I'm, I think I, I'm interested in thinking more about like what, you know, the other resonances of that are, I think over time, but I don't really have any other immediate overriding explanations. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. I feel similarly. And like, perhaps that's yeah. the danger of back to back watching this in the documentary yeah. and in which Anya Sparta decides to explain what she was trying to yeah. do. But well, I guess it's interesting too, in the sense of like, I mean, I don't know whether, I guess I will preface this by saying that doing this podcast is a little daunting in the sense that, uh, obviously presumably so much has been said about this movie so mm-hmm. it's possible that i'm just saying things where people are like yeah like there is an established conversation about this people have decided what this means already but um we don't I allow guess, those like, thoughts to enter here because <laughs> otherwise i won't do this <laughs> yeah okay fair enough yeah fair, but i mean this film especially of all her films but yeah do you feel as though um, I guess the the ultimate outcome is that she has she is really sick, right? But she's, but it's not the doctor doesn't seem to think it's like so serious. Like it, it he he seems to think it's going to be okay. Um, what do you is that do is that the interpretation that you arrive at? Yeah, and it, it's a very open ended ending that I, it's funny, in my memory, again, I'll just, like, keep referencing what I had forgotten between Watch 1 and Watch 2, uh, in my memory, she wasn't sick, like, that was the ending, and it, mm. I felt like I was more remembering the sort of cavalier attitude of the doctor, where yeah. I was like, I don't remember there being some sort of grave delivery yeah. of news. Which I guess is, like, disconcerting in the sense that, like, the doctor could be behaving that way because... First of all, he's a doctor and everyone he deals with is sick. And so no particular sick person is necessarily special to him. Mm-hmm. And then also he's like going on vacation. <laughs> like, or something like that. So He's convertible. You're yeah. just like, yeah, I guess. But you, you would, you, you would hope that, you know, you can take what he's saying at face value and that she's going to be fine. But the reason I brought it up at all was because I guess, obviously there's this narrative that's being set up in terms of the, you know, fiction versus reality, like the color versus black and white where you know like she the the psychic is or the whatever you would call her the medium is trying to tell her like oh it's okay like this doesn't mean death it's it might just be like extreme transformation Mm -hmm. but then like she's obviously quite disturbed and then you get that shot where she's saying to the other person like oh i saw cancer you know in the college she's doomed right so (laughs) what do you make of that well it's interesting because i mean i think death in this film has so many layers and has so many not necessarily physical death and especially if we take the doctor at his word that it's going to be like two weeks of radiation and she'll be fine two months i think oh two months okay two months of radiation and she'll be fine (laughs) like that is still a life-changing yeah experience and like Especially, I mean, for anyone, but especially a pop singer whose image is so important. Like, yeah, chemotherapy is, like, physically, radically changing a body. And, like, 
Yeah, so it would be a death of at least some part of her life or, like, a, a drastic um, yeah. transformation. Something, yeah, a death of, like, a certain kind, you know, version of herself or sense of herself, probably. Yeah, which I think also... You, that, I mean, I'm, you see that in this movie, I think. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, there's that, like, what is identified by Anis Varda as that, like, kind of rupture halfway through the film where she just sort of, like, breaks away from the image of herself that others seem to perceive and sort of tries to self-define in the second half. Yeah. And I think, yeah, that is also, like, sort of a death and rebirth that we, we witness over the course of these two hours or hour and a half. Segwaying into the next section, because then she departs, and there's, like, that first musical cue, which is mm. one of my favorites, where her footsteps down the stairs are, like, perfectly in timed with Michelle Legrand's score. There's like another topic or like angle into this movie is just the role of the music and how Cleo relates to music. Yeah, well, what are your thoughts on that? So I know that you, I feel like you were someone who relates, you know, I think the, the musical element of films is something that you are particularly passionate about. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I. I don't feel like I have like a fully fleshed out theory but uh just like noticing when the music seems to become interior to her versus exterior um and mm. obviously like with her career there's like a lot of exterior music like the scene where the cab driver puts on her song and she's sort of like falsely modest about it and yeah <laughs> being like oh it's terrible but huh, it's me <laughs> um <laughs> and yeah, and then she, like, also puts it on in the cafe later. Yeah. And so, like, it's a source of external validation, it seems, for yeah. her. But then there's scenes, like, when she's descending those stairs from the fortune teller, and it's perfectly in time with her steps, and she's totally alone. And also the sort of climactic scene where she's singing Sans Toi, and it shifts from just being Michelle Legrand's piano and her singing to the full orchestral arrangement and... Uh, Anya Sparta like reframes the shot so that it's just pitch black in the background and it's almost like an isolated soundstage kind of thing um, and it feels so internal and like related to her mortality um, so it's just interesting there seems to be that sort of like shift in the music in and out that I was picking up on on this watch yeah what do you think was her the moment when she's when she goes to that cafe and puts on her song is one that was really striking to me. What do you think that she's doing or hoping will happen when she does that? It's interesting. I I don't know because initially I was like, oh, maybe she's just like wanting someone to be like, is this you? Or like, oh, whoa, like there's the singer <laughs> that we're hearing. Um but I'm not even sure it's that, because I, I feel like she... I doubt she... I feel like that surely is it because I feel like that's kind of, like, weird, right? To be like, <laughs> why are you putting your own music on? It's bizarre. The, <laughs> like... the song that you apparently detest. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's very odd, but then she just seems, like, okay to observe. And I think one of the parties she observes in the cafe does remark... On but not music, in a, but not positively. Not a, well, yeah, I mean, it's neither positively nor negatively, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is like maybe I, yeah, I guess it's interesting because I think that moment, insofar as like for example, Savada so in that uh, documentary that we watched was sort of describing that there's like this break in the film where she kind of becomes less of a like an object and more of a subject, or like you know, there's mm -hmm. sort of this like what she describes as like a feminist shifting towards her being like an I guess maybe an agent you would say or like having agency or like trying to you know make sense of her own life 
rather than just reflecting being reflected in others um but yeah i guess i don't i it was it was an interesting gesture to me because that gesture does happen after that break like she kind of had her moment of like yeah i think sort of distress and realization and she's gone out um by herself but yeah in in one sense it's kind of vain like it's like why Mm -hmm. you know like what why are you putting on your own music in a cafe but i think it's also just to do with her feeling wanting to feel like she like is a part of the world or like has some effect on the world maybe um or that like you know there's some yeah that people appreciate her or like want the thing that she's like putting out there um and so I think that the thing that she overhears is almost worse than even criticism or I don't know it's hard to say because it's not even really about the music. It's just like, oh, like this noise. It's so hard to talk right. when there's noise. Like it's not even really a response to her work. So, yeah, yeah. It's and part of me likes. I I agree that it is vain. And I think like if that break in the film had been like such a hard break where it's like, yeah, she's so different than who she was the first half of the film. <laughs> it just like wouldn't work. But these sort of continuities in her character and her faults. Um, yeah, I think works. It makes more sense, I think. And I also like. I think like everyone wants to feel like they belong to the world and that there's a place for them in it. So exactly, and also she's she thinks she's dying. So <laughs> to be to be clear, like I don't want to be you know overly harsh on her because you know she thinks she's waiting awaiting a terminal diagnosis. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I guess like how do you receive her? vanity in general or like her personality or like how do you interpret what kind of a person she is throughout the film because um I find her hilarious and <laughs> lovable and preposterous so. completely and I was sort of thinking about this too because I was thinking from the get-go whether or not I sort of empathize with her and whether, like, Mm. from the very start of the film, I, you know, want to know whether she's deathly ill or not. And I think it's, it's complicated. Um, Mm. And I, and it is part of her sort of, the word that they keep using in the film for her is, like, capricious, capricious, is that you pronounce it? No. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I think in some ways that's a very, like, suited word for her, even though she so hates it. Um, but I don't know. I just, I like really admire her shifts, um, which I think the chapter titles in the film, like do a great job of sort of signaling of these sort of moods that take her and, and come and go. Um, so like when she wants to buy the hat, it's sort of just very like fun to watch and entertaining. And also I think kind of relatable. Um, yeah. Also, I'm, like, super interested in how early in the film we get her internal monologue when she's, like, looking in the mirror and saying, like, ugliness is a form of death. Minute, beau papillon. Être laid, c'est ça la mort. Tant que je suis belle, je suis vivante et dix fois plus que les autres. A fucked up thing to say and think. Yeah. Uh, but also, like, kind of amazing in the fact that we get to be privy to that thought yeah. Uh, sort of aligns the viewer with her a little bit. And, like, yeah, I think any film that has gaze as such a major theme also implicates the viewer in that gaze. And, like, mm. I started thinking, like, okay, how am I defining Cleo as I watch her? And how am I judging her? Um, but also that fact that so early we are getting insight into her, like, self-gaze um, is just sort of interesting as to, like, how we develop empathy for her. I think the moment that I'm, like, fully on board, and it's a late moment, but a moment I'm absolutely in love with her is the staircase dance. Oh, yeah. That's delightful. It's so wonderful. Audacieux, 
savoir la saveur de ma bouche en cœur. And you're just like, okay, like the sort of displays of vanity and pop singerness aren't just for other people, it's for herself. And yeah. it's yeah, just so lovely. Um this is a this is a sort of a less um sort of like spiritually pure or even spiritually significant moment, but uh, a moment when I was really sold on her was when we were watching her do her exercise routine. <laughs> I I just love it. <laughs> I think that like the sort of like affective combination of someone who is like seems extremely superficial but also actually contains hidden depths is like actually a a movie or just like a narrative archetype that I'm very fond of. Like yep. this is a very weird intertext probably potentially but like one of my favorite films ever is Clueless and I think that kind of yes. like falls into this category of like you know this this protagonist who you think of, I mean, she's not dying. So that's <laughs> like, it's very, it's happening at a very different level, but um, you know, that there's this protagonist who you kind of interpret or think by some extent you're being encouraged to write off. And mm -hmm. then, um, you know, she kind of like proves herself to be this like interesting person in other ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I certainly, um, you know, find her vanity sort of like entertaining and relatable i mean there's there is that moment in the hatch where she's like i love trying things on everything that suits me <laughs> so, amazing which is, it's not which wrong is true <laughs> so, it was like, I, was, fair enough. <laughs> I was watching with my roommate and during the hat mm -hmm. scene we kept being like oh that's the one like girl you gotta yeah. buy that one and then now she went for the the winter hat in summer which she rocked well, did you but... did you read anything into the hat choice um, no, I mean, although seasons seem very important in this film, uh, and I guess, like, the fact that it's a winter hat that she's buying in summer. And uh, they're so superstitious as well. I don't know whether yes. you had any thoughts. Like, obviously, her... I don't remember the name of her mage. Uh, Angel, I think. Angel, yeah. Um, she and Angel are so superstitious. Yeah, which is interesting. Well, A, I've never heard that before. Don't wear yeah, I mean, things <laughs> on a Tuesday. I was like, what? And don't carry oh, like even things. carry them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I I wasn't sure if it was a device to, like, show the control that Angel kind of, like, forced upon Cleo's life and then, like, allowed for uh, her later to be like, damn, Tuesday, I'll do what I like, or whatever the line is. Cleo... Je vous rappelle que c'est mardi. C'est mardi, zut, je fais ce qui me plaît. Yeah, I guess I, I don't really interpret Angel's influence as, like, being domineering in any sense, in the sense of, like, it really does seem as though at least that version of Claire that we're meeting at the beginning, like, like she more or less participates in these views. Like, it doesn't seem like they're ones that are being put upon her by someone else. Or maybe, I don't know. But it does really seem like her life would unravel a little bit if she didn't have this person kind of like telling her what to do um yeah. and that she she relishes having someone do those things to her so that she can just think about you know buying hats and, and so on um yeah and then like the her delightful exercise in her room it's like angela being like it's time for your stretches <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and also the fact that her name is angel i was thinking about that yeah, because well, there's so much angelic imagery in that scene. I know. I I didn't even I didn't remember this from the first time, but there's that scene where she's being framed by the wings. Yeah, in that amazing robe. Yes, incredible. <laughs> what did you think of um, the role of the musicians in it? Like beyond just the mm. role of music, which we sort of talked about, but the scene where Michelle Legrand and the other guy like play their little prank. And are sort of these. I didn't like... realize that was Michelle Legrand. Oh yeah. Um, um, I have such a crush I, on him. I was like, I, swooning. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, like they're both, like he's so charming. Yeah. Like the character is so charming. And everyone is like, I feel like these people are not principally actors. Some of these people are not principally actors, but they're all very naturalistic. Like mm -hmm. I don't know, like they, it's seamless. Like so much charisma. Je Je savais très bien qui tu étais, ton 
la cognito faisait ma gaieté Et ton compte en banque, ma volupté Tu croyais séduire, tu m'achetais Moi perfidement, je t'aimantais Truly, when he pops up from behind the piano and he's like, the music's no good but yeah it's it's interesting sort of how and like again her sort of childishness or her rebellion and like it seems to shift so much in her interactions with them or there are moments when she seems endeared to them moments where she's like very fed up I sort of took them as, like, sort of annoying little brother types yeah. to her character. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it, you know, certainly, obviously, like, you know, insofar as, like, that's the scene in which we see how it is that Cleo is sort of, like, treated in her creative or artistic or professional life. Like, uh, yeah, I think in sort of the same way as she's treated by her lover and you know yeah just sort of like trivialized i think it, it is like flushing out that portrait of you know the way in which she is considered by others yeah i i think because we get to see her interact with so many different types of people who like bring that out to different degrees um mm. like i think especially because we lose at least a bit of that in the second half of the film or she seems yeah. a bit more mature and that's when she interacts with um her friend Dorothy. yeah is that her name yeah um and that seems like the most grounded yeah um, like that's something like it seems as though Dorothy is someone who like takes her seriously and like you know someone who's like known her for a long time and I guess the other thing that we didn't touch on is that like when she goes to that cafe it kind of seems as though she's revisiting places from her past because she's mm. kind of saying like, Oh, like, you know, I think she says something like, Oh, like, you know, here I am again. And then with Dorothea, she's like, Oh, I stopped by the cafe and I put my music on and she is like, Oh, well, you know, remember when it was like the three of us and you know, I was a dancer and you were the That's singer right. and only you were the one who really made it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like tellingly, Dorothy is like one of the few characters in the film who isn't in Cleo's employ, isn't like a creative mm. partner with her, or isn't a lover. Um, yeah, like there aren't those. I don't know what the term is like, stakes or just those like kind of burdens that come with those types of relationships. And so, in some ways, it's almost like liberating for them to just, like, be on the town driving and talking. Um, and it does feel like Cleo can kind of shed the more toxic elements of her sort mm -hmm. of behavior. Um, yeah, I would love to hear what you thought about their conversation, I guess. Well, one thing I noted, this isn't their conversation as such, but I feel like an interesting thing about the Dorothea sequence is that that is... I think a relatively rare instance in the movie again of like getting someone's inner monologue. Like when we first see her, mm -hmm. you hear her think, I believe you hear her think thoughts about Cleo, like something like, oh, like she's so kind or something like that. Cleo qui vient ici. Ce qu'elle est gentille. Ce qu'elle est belle. C'est tout de suite fini. Attends-moi une minute, hein? Yeah, which is kind of like a funny moment because, you know, like she's the one who's nude modeling like I think like like it's almost like you're I mean I feel like I ha was having that thought about her while she was having that thought about Cleo like I was like wow like she's really beautiful <laughs> um, so yeah I don't know like I wonder whether that's you know a way to kind of like set the tone of their relationship in a certain way um as well but you know obviously Dorothy says um you know it's very liberating you know I'm they're not looking at me really or like they're not like ogling me like they're like I'm like an idea like I'm sort of like abstraction or something like that which is a kind of like different yeah it's it's obviously just like a different kind of view than Cleo is used to I think like I think that she's well I mean or maybe it's not like I think like in both senses they're talking about being objectified in a sense but like one of those forms is liberating right 
But, and I think she says, there's a line that I was, I didn't know what to make of, where she says, like, my body makes me happy, not proud. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Which I yeah. found really interesting. Um, but I just, like, I was like, I don't, I'm not sure what to make of that and how it relates to Cleo's own relationship with her body. Um, well, I think Cleo's really proud, but not always happy. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I mean, the other thing that that sequence encompasses is when they go to the cinema and mm-hmm. they watch the film that's in the middle of it. Yeah, which we can segue to that film. Yeah. Well, do you have any sort of... I don't know whether you even just know things about the background of that film or like, you know, what it's about or why it's in the movie. But that was another thing where I was like, wow, like this movie has so much in it. It really does. It's a packed 90 minutes and it like really flies by for someone. It's just about someone waiting for something. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so I, I watched um, on the like disc I have of, of these movies, there was, like, a little excerpt of Anya Sparta talking about Les Fiancés de Paul MacDonald, um, and it was kind of a funny reasoning. I mean, I'm sure kind of similar to the color as the opening sequence reasoning, there's probably more to it than she was saying, but she just sort of felt like all movies drag at about, like, the halfway (laughs) point, and she was like, I just wanted to put something different and different pace to kind of keep the audience engaged and make sure they're not <laughs> bored. So that was sort of, she had the thought of making Dorothy's boyfriend a projectionist and, like, showing this short film. Uh, and then also it was, like, kind of poking fun at Jean-Luc Godard, who plays... Uh, the, the the main character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, because he always wore these sunglasses and on his right was fed up with it. Um <laughs> And so she sort of came up with this plot of a man who puts on his sunglasses and sees the world in a more dark light. Way. Yeah, but I I was struck by its resonances with the main narrative of Cleo from 5 to 7 as well. Yes, Um, yeah. Especially in this notion of, like, doubling, and, like, we later find out that Cleo's real name is Florence, Mm. part of her that maybe died when she became Cleo, the pop singer, but is now, like, Mm. being revived. It just feels like these multiple selves that she contains. Um, And it's sort of in that short film with the two Annas, one who dies and one who lives and loves, um, sort of felt like a reflection of of those themes in Cleo. Yeah. At first I didn't remember... Well, to to speak to the sort of doubling thing and Claire having a double life, I don't know, too, whether there's anything to be made of. In fact, the soldier is like, oh, yeah, like, Flora, like, goddess of the summer, and then later on he's like, oh, wait, I was wrong. That's... that's The Flora is actually the goddess of spring. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't know whether that has anything to do with the fact that in the documentary she references that she would have wanted to film in the spring, but then it just ended up being in the summer, so I don't know. But... Um, yeah, the film, it was interesting. Um, I mean, fortunately, the, the two women are actually played by different people as opposed to, for example, Anna Karina in blackface. Mm-hmm. So that <laughs> would be stressful. Yes. Um, but I guess the sort of like simplistic moral to take, I think it literally is what it says, but, you know, when you are looking at life in a certain way, uh, you see it as, like, negativity or pessimism, Mm -hmm. where there's actually sort of a much more simple explanation, or, like, there's just a way to view things that isn't as dark, basically. And, yeah, I don't know, I mean, obviously that potentially applies to Cleo's situation in the sense that, well, yeah, like, it it is, like, a fairly literal parallel in the sense of, like, it's possible that she's seeing everything as like leading towards death when in fact everything might be fine or I guess ultimately somewhere in between those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other thing I thought was that there's that scene where when she's walking with the soldier, they see like a, a premature baby being like carried into the back of a car yeah. in like a glass case. And it's like that, 
very much reminded me of the short film too in the sense that I was like oh yeah like if you were wearing you know tinted glasses you know in that metaphorical sense it like visually reminded me of like someone being carried into the back of a car which could look like a hearse if it was a black car (laughs) but it's you know a baby being carried into a white car so but I did love the sort of parallel of the hearse and the ambulance in the short Mm -hmm. film and that last shot of the short film where you see both drive away uh, and they've got like that iris out that kind of is a weird shape and focuses on those two two vehicles leaving I thought was so well done yeah Um, but yeah that baby moment I also was just thinking a lot about just, like, the recurrence of, like, sort of, like, grotesque imagery. Like, mm. there's, like, the man who's, like, swallowing all the little frogs. Yeah. And the guy who's, like, piercing his arm. And, like, yeah, I think, I don't know whether you had thought about that as well. But, yeah, I think it it does, it is used very effectively to contribute to her general sense of just, like, I think, like, disgust and decay and doom. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, but she also has a she also has a ring with, you know, a toad on it. So I feel like she's she's kind of in on it to to some extent, which I want that ring. It's such a good ring. It's a great ring. Yeah. It's very charming that the crew like bought it for her for, yeah. for Agnes Waldo. That was so sweet. Yeah. Um Yeah. Yeah. I definitely yeah, I was thinking about the the frog eating man and the like bicep piercing as sort of like like the sort of the opposite of perhaps how Cleo treats her body of like Mm. sacred to the point of not ever engaging with the grotesque and like sort of yeah just introducing these like gross foreign objects into the body (laughs) um, that sort of felt connected to this idea of, like, disease versus, uh, like, purity of the body. Yeah, well, I guess with the with the guy who's swallowing the frogs, he says, like, you know, don't worry, like, they'll be fine. So, like, he's not actually eating it. Like, he's just, like, what, like, stuffing his mouth or something? I think, I think um, David Blaine had a similar trick. Okay. Is he just shoving toads in his mouth (laughs) yeah or like kind of training the body to like store them in this esophagus so then like can that's honestly astonishing yeah it's pretty wild um (laughs) yeah um i would think that Um, would kill a toad i would think yes so would i (laughs) um but yeah i mean i guess like i hadn't put it together in the way that you just expressed it but yeah, like, I think, because I think I had just sort of interpreted it as, like, oh, like, it's just part of this, like, menacing atmosphere, but mm. it's also true that, um, yeah, it's, like, these people who, I guess in the case of this guy with the toads, like, he's saying, like, oh, I'm, like, doing this now, but it's going to be fine, like, everything will be fine, you know, and I I wonder, too, whether when you actually get over that original, which, you know, maybe is the point of the movie, doesn't make sense, like, once you get over that original concept of like fear and disgust and aversion like Mm. that experience can actually is not like a definitive facial experience like it can be sort of surpassed and will be surpassed Hmm. that's interesting yeah and it makes me think of also the introduction of the soldier Mm. because at least for me initially when he first shows up i'm like this is bad news um Mm. In just what like, sense? Just, like, oh, chatting her up and being yeah. like, oh, it's so quiet here. And it's like, well, yeah, like, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And the fact that it sort of turns and they have this very, like, meaningful connection yeah. is, I think, surprising. Um, yeah, for sure. And not not to say that he's, like, so gross, like, you know, or, well, like... Well, I mean, I, I, I guess, like, for my personal feeling, I, too, like, you know, she... There's a moment where she's like, "Oh, I made I made a mistake, which is that I started talking to you, and now you won't stop talking to me." <laughs> um, yeah, like I think that like that's a fairly. I understand that response. Like I wouldn't really be inclined usually to get into long conversations with strangers who approach me. I don't know. Maybe that's yeah. I don't know. I All understand right, why yeah. she reacts that way, but um, yeah, they do have a very genuine connection, and I liked the way that 
Varda described it in the documentary where it was kind of like they have this like I think you really feel it somehow like it's like they do have this understanding and it's not even necessarily like being in love like they just are together you Mm -hmm. know in a certain way um for a period of time yeah and that that amazing two lines that are like separated uh only by a few like a minute where she's says, oh, it's not enough time when he says he has to catch his train, and then, like, oh, we have all the time in the world. I thought it was so lovely. Yeah, and I think, well, I mean, the other... The thing that the soldier reminds me of is that, like, I guess so he's, you know, off fighting in Algeria. And that's also something that is, like, being brought up at different times throughout the movie. Like, you sort of, like, hear bits and pieces of that. Yeah, I also took note of that. As another, like, a sort of the specter of death looming over everything. Yeah. When the cab driver turns on that radio uh, and it's reporting on the deaths. Il y a eu aujourd'hui encore des manifestations musulmanes en Algérie, dans la région de Tchidjeli. Le bilan de ces trois journées d'effervescence dans le Constantinois est de 20 morts et 60 blessés. À Paris, suite des procès devant le haut commandement militaire, le commandant Robin, qui a participé au putsch d'Alger le 22 avril, a été condamné à six ans de détention criminelle. Autre préoccupation politique. Yeah, I think, I think, that I was trying to decode those headlines, you know, in the radio, I was like, I wonder whether these headlines mean anything. Right. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, well, I mean, I felt like they were all kind of, a lot, a lot of them were sort of ten, uh, tangentially in a way related to the concept of like, yeah, like life and death or like healing. Like she's, yeah, Edith Piaf is like recovering from this operation. And, and But, yeah, I thought it was funny that, well, yeah, I, I, I wondered whether the the soldier and what he was happening there like i'm sure there's like much deeper commentary to be made about that parallel but um yeah i guess i was wondering whether it was supposed to like reflect upon or mirror or like contrast with the sort of anxiety being experienced by cleo in a certain way like yeah like you said you know he says like i um was uh, dying for nothing is the worst thing like how does that you know interact with what Cleo fears is happening in her life um Mm -hmm. I thought it was kind of funny when he I don't remember what it is that he says that prompts this in her but she says like oh yes like I'm afraid of everything you know like elevators like whatever like what what are the things that she's afraid of vous croyez aux cartes oui j'ai peur de tout des oiseaux de l'orage des ascenseurs des aiguilles puis maintenant cette énorme peur de mourir I think she, I think she says something like, "Oh yes, I'm afraid of everything, like birds, you yeah. know, elevators, <laughs> like whatever, like death." And now I'm afraid of death. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought it was like funny in that line. Like I felt that you could still sort of feel the person that she was, and that it's like, well, like one of these things is substantially more serious <laughs> than the other things. And I feel like that was kind of like the problem that she was tackling in the first. Half. I mean, like, maybe this is, like, a... Maybe I'm, like, viewing her reductively or something, but, like, it felt as though she was a person who had been encouraged and had, like, you know, like... Mostly had just been, like, floating along with life in, like, a fairly frivolous way. And, like, there was just, like, no real framework for her to, like, at first to, like, assimilate such a, like, potentially insane thing happening as, like... Like, it's, like, if you are you know, to any individual person, like, the possibility of you dying soon suddenly is, like, there can be no more insane thing because then you're dead, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, I guess, like, I'm, I feel like I'm coming across as though I might be quite judgmental of her, but I think that, like, if anything, that probably is just the dynamic between her character and, you know, the way that she's sort of tolerating or trying to assimilate the concept of her and of her potential own death is, just, I think, a dramatization of how it would be for anyone, no matter how serious they normally were, would be, right? Like, it's like, I guess, like, you, how is it possible for anyone to really assimilate that, really? Um, right. And I think that, like, if you're someone who lives 
you know, there's another way to live where you are always prepared for that and you're sort of like overly somber and serious and like what kind of a way to live is that either, you know? So like I don't think you want to be someone who lives in full anticipation of your own death, like in such a way that you could never be surprised by it because you're already, you know, so dour or something. But like suddenly like she lacks that framework to yeah, I, I don't know. And I think I, I thought that line was funny because it felt like it was pointing to that in a way where she's like, you know, like the kinds of fears that she had been living with in her life was like birds and elevators. And then like suddenly she was like, oh, maybe I have cancer. So, um. yeah. And how she holds it into just her, I guess like the way I would say is that she lives a pretty sheltered existence. Oh, for sure. Uh, from like yeah. the beginning of, we witnessed like, she doesn't even have to deal with the money to pay the taxi driver. It's Angel who does that. And she takes taxis everywhere. Yeah, no, like, yeah. Like, yeah, like, uh, Dorothy is like, wow, so let's so, bad, you know, spoiled of you. Um, well, she, well, at one point she says, like, you know, everyone spoils me, but nobody loves me, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. Which is a great line. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like, I, I the set design of her room is also just like amazing because mm-hmm. like it's she's almost just like well there's that scene where she's like in bed and she like is sort of like combing and you know, playing toying with her wig or something like you know looking in that that, that little mirror and it's yeah. she really looks like a like fairy tale princess like mm-hmm. you know with that bed as well that like four poster bed that she has kissing her kittens yeah yeah what do you think happens to Cleo after I mean like. I get, yeah. What do you think happens to Cleo after the movie? And do you think that she interacts with the soldier again? Mm. She make a Cleo from seven to nine. Um, <laughs> I would guess no. Um, that they that he takes his train and they part ways. Yeah. Well, she takes his address, and I was like, I was kind of surprised by that because I was like, what is she expecting to do with it? My feeling is that they are like she's changed by the moment in each other but like not in a way like I don't interpret this ending as like suddenly she's like oh yes like this past is like she's now going to like marry this guy or something right and I think that goes you back know, to what yeah. Anya Sparta said of like it's not love or a romance between them yeah. it's like it's the moment yeah. um yeah and it's t- the togetherness in that moment well funnily enough the actors also didn't really see each other. right I loved that <laughs> detail you're like nope yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also funny that he doesn't remember going to Cannes at all. Yes. <laughs> it would seem that, like, maybe that would be something that you would remember. But, I mean, I, I kind of, yeah, I loved seeing all of them because I feel like a lot of them, like, look basically the same. Like, I was like, that's really impressive. It really like, is. I mean, obviously, like, not, you know, they look old, but, like, like, like very recognizably the same person. Um, yeah. Which is kind of amazing. Um but yeah, I was like, wow, life is long. Like, maybe I'll get to that age and there'll be some big thing that I did that I don't even remember having done. Yeah, so. you can revisit. And that's such a theme in Anya Sparta's career of, like, I think this will be the first of a few, like, documentaries where she returns to mm. um, the where she filmed a place or to the people that she filmed um, and does sort of follow-ups. And I always adore it because it's... A, really interesting for all the reasons you just said of, like, yeah, seeing how these people have aged or remained the same through the years. Um, But also I find her, what she takes an interest in, like, the whole section in the documentary about what happened to the trees, um, and she talks Mm. to the arborists, like, I... Oh, I love that. I'm so endeared by that. Yeah. I, I, oh, that, that man. It, it was so, <laughs> it was so charming. So lovely. Um, yeah, where he's like, I don't love trees. I adore trees. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, well, well when, when he's like, oh, yes, and, you know, like, teenagers hang out with new handlers and trees, and they carve, you know, things like, you know, darling, I love you. And, like, I, and yes, it's like, oh, well, isn't that romantic? He's like, yes, it is romantic, but also trees are alive, and they don't <laughs> like to be hurt. <laughs> Which, fair, fair play. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um Yeah. <laughs> Totally. Um, I will never carve anything into a tree ever again. <laughs> no, God forbid. That man will show up and shake his head. Yeah. Um. Um. What? It, like such characters, you know? Just yeah. Where yeah. Does, where does one find these people? 
Yeah, it's she finds them and like clearly wins their trust so quickly. Yeah. Um, which I find so lovely. I mean, I just love that she like can still find and reach all these people, like the actors yeah. and her assistants and stuff, and you know has these relationships with them still. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I love the sense of like that being a just continuation of the like beautiful film scene that was yeah. the French New Wave of like yeah, yeah Jean Luc Godard and Anna Karina are gonna be in this little short film. Um, I also was struck, I, like, found it very refreshing how sort of transparent she was about her process. Mm. Um, like that part where she said, she was like, oh, for the DVD restoration, like, I cut these one and a half seconds. Yeah, that was cool. From this scene, and it's just like, wow, like, that's just, those are the, like, deep cut process details that most filmmakers don't share. Either because they but don't think like, it'll be interesting, but yeah, yeah, it's so interesting, and and it was cool to see like, oh, she's absolutely right. Like, it's better without. It is better. The weird yeah. slow mo. Yeah. I also thought it was funny. Well, I mean, I also liked her. The thing about the, I didn't, I didn't notice the track in the final scene that she was so worried about. Yeah, I hadn't at all. Um, but such an interesting sort of the lesson that she took from it of, yeah, the inability to recreate a moment. Um, like I mean, that. it makes sense. Yeah. Completely. Um, and, like, a testament to her to recognize that and just, like, okay, I'll just keep the, yeah. the tracks in the shot. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to look for that next time I watch. Thank you for oh, yeah, you're welcome. chatting with me about this. A delightful film. A delightful and profound film. Really is. Yeah, one I can revisit Yeah. always, I think. Yeah. Comme une île déserte